Uh, well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew this winter, and this is now Matthew 14. And last, um, well, last week we talked about something and then skipped ahead three chapters. And uh, so what we skipped, among the other things we skipped, was that Jesus fed the 5,000. So that was the last thing that happened in the Gospel. Famous story where he takes... Uh, just a little bit of bread, uh, a little bit of fish, and he multiplies it and feeds a huge crowd of 5,000 people. And uh, the, the, the miracle is so powerful, and it reminds him so much of God feeding Israel in the wilderness that the people actually at that point tried to make him the king. And uh, it says in John 6.14, when the people saw the miracle he had done, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, but Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. And so that's what's going on here at the beginning of this passage where he dismisses the crowd. He's dismissing the crowd because he doesn't want to rely on that kind of political power. He didn't come to exercise that kind of power, to wield kind of human material political solutions. Instead, he goes up to this mountain by himself where he finds a greater power than any other kind of human power. And so in verse 23, you see that he turns to his father. He goes up to the mountain by himself to pray. Probably for several reasons, one of them being that he just needs to be alone. He needs to re-energize and uh, find time alone with God. And I think that's true of a lot of us. I won't go into that. But, you know, if you're depleted spiritually, you need to go up to, <clears throat> to a mountain of some sorts and, and be alone. And these mountains that he goes to are obviously still there today. They're called the Golan Heights. You may have heard of those. Um, they are the highest mountains on this rim of mountains that rings the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is actually not a sea, it's a, it's a lake. It's the largest freshwater lake in that region of Palestine. It's 13 miles long, and it's 8 miles across. And uh, it's a, so it's the size of Washington, D.C. And it's 100 feet deep at the lowest point, and it's 700 feet below sea, sea level. So it goes, it's down into a bowl. Um, and the whole thing is like this bowl, uh, kind of like a dog's bowl with water in the bottom, and these mountains are right around 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet, and so just picture that, that setting, you know, you can, you can obviously look at this, uh, you can go on the internet and look at images of this, but just picture that setting of the Sea of Galilee, he's up on this mountain, one of the highest mountains, it's actually on the eastern rim of the sea, and what these mountains do is they create a wind tunnel, I'm not exactly sure geologically why that is, but um, we were in Minneapolis a few weeks ago when, in the midst of that uh, you know, Arctic uh, attack of negative 50 degree winds. And the downtown of Minneapolis by the building just create these wind tunnels. And so we were walking in negative 50 degree weather with wind slapping us in the face. So these mountains around the Sea of Galilee create this wind tunnel. And so it's known even today that suddenly a storm will come up and will create uh, this gigantic gust of wind so that in verse 22 is very realistic when it says the disciples get into this boat and go before Jesus to the uh, western side. He's going from east to west. So one of these storms arises and they're in this boat. And the boat is not a big boat. It's not like a yacht. It's about the size of three canoes put together. And so um, we found these actually. Again, you can look at that on the internet. But you can find one of these ancient boats. We've actually found a fishing boat of the fishermen around the Sea of Galilee at this time. And so they are, it says in verse 24, a long way from land. So they're way out there, 
Uh, probably one or two miles, because it literally means, uh, the statement is mini stadia. And that's, that's about, that's around one to two miles out. So maybe Jesus can see them from the top of that mountain, but they're way out there at a very unsafe distance. And suddenly the storm arises. So it's too far to swim. And verse 24 says they were beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And I saw a video, I wanted to kind of get a picture of what this might look like, so I looked at a video of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, just because I can't imagine a storm on a lake very much. I haven't been to a big enough lake to see a storm, and the storm looked like something you would see in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it was, it was scary. There was, uh, the sky was obviously pitch black, and there were uh, just huge white caps everywhere along the sea. And probably the waves were about, you know, 10 feet tall so it's it's scary these are professional fishermen but still even they were were scared uh it's 4 a.m so it's the fourth watch of the night verse 25 so um they've been fighting this weather probably all night long i mean he dismissed them it was not nighttime so imagine them being out there trying to go to the western shore and just beaten by wave after wave after wave so they've been rowing for hours they've gotten nowhere they're wet and they're cold and they're exhausted so if you've been out on the sea, you can kind of picture this better than I can. I don't know much about that. But at that point, it says that they see an apparition in the water. And the word in Greek is phantasm. It's not used anywhere else in the Greek. So it's translated sometimes ghost. Um, but phantasm is a literal translation. And so it's no wonder in verse 26 that they are terrified. And here's where you've got to use your imagination and you've got to forget about any movie you've seen, any Jesus movie of this image. You've got to think about a real storm and a, a real fishing boat uh, pounded by gigantic, you know, dark waves rising and falling heavily on this angry sea. And there's spray kicking up everywhere and there are waves pounding the side of the boat. And I don't know if you've been caught in a storm, but just think about the chaos of that and the fear of that. And then imagine in the midst of that context, you look over to your right and like 50 feet away, there is, the, there is what looks like a human body uh, moving around in the driving rain. And the figure is not drowning. And I don't know whether, whether it's bobbing up and down or whether it's just kind of going and the waves are going over it and the head remains you know, up and down or whether it's bobbing up and down with the waves. But whatever it is, they see that, and it says they cried out in fear. And I think we all would, in verse 26. Um, They cried out in fear. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And that would be horrible advice if I had said that, or if you had said that. It makes no sense to say that. But in this case, in verse 27, it says, it is I. And that's a really important part of that phrase. Because if you know the Old Testament you know that uh, God refers to himself as I am. Uh, In Greek, it's ego eimi. And so that's actually what he says. I wish it translated that way in the Bible. But what he really says is, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And so what he's proclaiming to them is that he is the Lord of the sea and sky. It's like when Moses was at the burning bush. Moses says, who are you, Lord? And God says, I am. I am who I am. He is existence itself. And so... That's why they don't need to be afraid, is because even in this chaos, they are in the presence of the one who is the Lord of sea and sky. And the name emboldens Peter. To hear that name, I am, emboldens Peter. And then he, in verse 29, inexplicably, he got out of the boat. 
Now the, the storm is still raging. Jesus is still over there in the water. I guess they think it's a phantasm still, but now he said, I am. And Peter gets out of the boat. Um, he puts that one leg over the boat, and the other ones are probably shocked about what is going on right now. And he begins to enter into the waves. And uh, it's a strange desire that is not explained by the text. And you're probably wondering why he did that. What is the motivation for that? And I don't know for sure. I like that it doesn't tell us. But we do know that the disciples were young. They're a lot younger than you normally think they were. They were probably between 18 and 25. And Peter was probably the oldest one. So let's say he's in his mid-20s. And I know that men in their mid-20s, their brain are still not fully developed yet. And so uh, men in their mid-20s are risk-takers. And they kind of like the adrenaline rush. So I understand the allure of this. When I was with uh, my family once down at Emerald Isle, which is where we vacation in North Carolina, um, the red flags were up along the beach. And if you know the red flags along the beach, that means that it's really dangerous weather. And there's probably a hurricane coming. So there were red flags, and they were just, you know, just flapping in the breeze, like almost straight out. You know, and you hear that sound uh, of the wind whipping against them. And I saw that, and I got so excited and I, I just took off down towards the beach. And Margie and the kids were screaming, you know, stop, stop. But I, I wanted to go into those waves. And I did. Uh, they were massive waves. But I was young. Um, I wasn't in my mid-20s, but I was still fairly young. And uh, actually did. I did, take, I did body surf one of those waves. So I can understand a little bit why Peter would try to get out of the boat. But he actually makes it to Jesus. Um, or at least halfway, because Jesus ends up taking his hand. So he gets some of the way there. I mean, it's an amazing thing that not only would he try that, but then he actually begins to accomplish that. And again, I don't know how he walked on the water. Um, you may have heard of the Jesus lizard. It's a kind of a lizard that has such big feet and moves so quickly that it can actually walk on the water. So that is not the way Peter was walking on the water. He was not skimming with huge webbed feet across the water. And I don't know what laws of physics were being defied or broken by him walking. Um, whether it was like, could be skiing, more like a ski type of walking, or like the bobbing up and down where he, he just doesn't sink. But however he did it, um, he is walking on the water. And I do think that really did happen. I think that's, this is not just uh, some kind of allegory or myth. It's not really told that way. Um, and in the middle of that walking, uh, Peter sees these huge waves. Now, it wasn't like the waves were not there before. You know, five minutes earlier, they were there. But now, somehow in the middle of walking, he, he focuses on the waves. His mind gets divided off. And he's not focused on Jesus anymore. He's focused on the waves now. And so it says that he began to sink in verse 30. Uh, the danger overwhelmed him. And I think all the terrible things that could happen to him now began to go through his mind. And so he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And then Jesus does two things which are simultaneous and somewhat at odds with one another. Number one, he, he saves him. And he reaches out his hand and grabs him, verse 31. But then number two is, as he's doing that, he is offering this gentle rebuke, which is namely, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that's actually what I want to talk about. Um, I usually have two points, and I usually don't have a long introduction, but this time I just wanted to focus on that one idea of faith and the doubt, the, the confidence of faith, the, the, little, the little faith. Oh, you have little faith, verse 31. So 
Not two points this time, just one point. Uh, faith, which is one of the most important words in the Bible. It's, uh, it's the, I mean, I've preached, I don't know how many sermons now, Matthew, maybe seven. I would say of those seven, maybe half were already about faith. So clearly this is a major, major word. It's a short word, but it's it, all the way from Old to New Testament, it's, it's an absolute key of what it means to believe in God is to have faith. So in the Bible, and now I'm moving to the first point here, the ocean is not a good place. The, the ocean, the sea, the lake, wherever it is, uh, they didn't go on vacations back then to the beach, and they didn't have those Salt Life stickers on their cars, you know, the, the Salt Life uh, love of the, the ocean and the beach. The ocean was a place of chaos and destruction, and you didn't want to go there. You did not want to be caught on the ocean. You had to do it because you had to get from one place to another, but that is where ships wrecked, and that is where people drowned, and they died, and they didn't learn how to swim probably that much back then. Because the ground beneath your feet was always changing. There was no stability. Um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, the water uh, refers to chaos. Even the original chaos of creation is compared to the ocean. And so the ocean ripped things apart and it, took, it would take a well-ordered ship and turn that into driftwood. So the ocean uh, was not a place um, where you wanted to dwell. It represented primeval chaos and disorder. And so... That's a big part of this story, is that um, Matthew is telling the early church this story to say that faith happens in the middle of chaos, in the middle of disorder and things going wrong, and in the middle of tragedy is where faith happens. And that's an essential part of faith. It's in the middle of your fears. They're terrified in verse 26. They cry out in fear. And it's not that you have to be afraid to have faith. But that's where the faith is really seen. That's where it engages with reality the most. In, in the middle of chaos and fear and terror even, they're, they're terrified in verse 26. Uh, the fear is so intense that they think that Jesus is a ghost of some kind. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen a ghost. I have not seen a ghost. I don't know if you believe in ghosts. I don't know what to think about ghosts myself. But I know that Jesus is not a ghost. And so when they think that he's a ghost... That is a moment of uh, superstition, irrationality, but that's what the fear is doing to them. Uh, They're that scared. And so I think faith is, in the middle of that fear, even that irrational bewilderment, it's focusing on the majesty of Christ in the middle of that fear. And so in verse 27, it's that key phrase, immediately Jesus spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In other words, I am. And it's focusing on the majesty. We talked about sovereignty last week. On God's sovereignty and his power and control and his beauty. In the middle of chaos. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's like everything else becomes kind of blurry. And that comes into focus. My daughter got a camera for Christmas. She got a lens for a camera for Christmas. And it's a lens. I don't know the name of it. But what it does is... Um, it, it, it makes everything in the background grow fuzzy. So if I want to take a picture of one of you, I would focus on that and everything else becomes blurry in the background. If you're a photographer, you know about these things. Um, but what they say is that it, it makes the person's face pop. And that's not a word that I use a lot in that context, you know, pop. But I hear that in decorating, uh, that is a word that basically means it, it, like, it grabs your eye So when something pops. And I didn't know for sure if I was using pop correctly, so I looked it up, and uh, an article came up that said, uh, make your walls pop 
with these cool ideas. Uh, chalkboard walls. I've seen these in your home. So uh, wall alcoves, rustic walls, quotes, and maps. Those are the, among other things, those will make a wall pop. And so I think what's going on here is that you can't really see things about Jesus unless your kids are going crazy. You can't really see certain things about Jesus unless your dog uh, is freaking out or your boss is screaming at you or your coach uh, is ignoring you, your back is killing you, your neighbor is driving you crazy, uh, your roommate is annoying you, your professor is not fair to you, you hate your job. There's just certain things you cannot know about Jesus unless you are in the middle of chaos. And those things will make him stand out. And um, grow very clear. And the things of the world grow strangely dim. And so I think faith is when you integrate uh, Jesus in the middle of the chaos. Where you don't compartmentalize and put him over here. And put the chaos over here. It says that when Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, uh, he begins to sink. And Jesus says, why did you doubt? And literally, this is verse 31. Uh, why did you doubt? And literally what Jesus says is, is, why is your mind divided? Or why did you split your mind apart at that moment? Why did you take me out from the situation? As we so often do, don't we? That we will suddenly split him off from the really important things in our life. So maybe school, work, money, kids, health, politics. You know, that, that's over here. I read the headlines um, on my phone, and then I have my prayer requests, my list of prayers on the phone, and they're kind of like here and here. And so here's the chaos over here, and then here's my safe space to go. And um, that, that is not the integration that faith is all about. Um, compartmentalization is when you put Jesus over here in a little box that you open up for your quiet times to find peace, but you, you do not bring him into the chaos. And faith is, is not having your mind divided is not doubting. And so when he says, why is your mind divided? What he's saying is, why are you not integrating my majesty and my sovereignty and my glory into your chaos? Why are you keeping that out? When Moses died, Israel was in chaos. They were in the wilderness. They were without a leader now. The, the leader that had taken them out of Egypt, there was, he was no longer there. They were terrified. And there was this massive Canaanite Civilization they were supposed to go in and conquer. So that's chaos. And then Joshua, who's supposed to be the next leader, is terrified. And God comes to Joshua and he says this in Joshua 1.9. He says to the next leader after Moses, Tell my people, and by the way, Joshua's young at this point. Tell my people to be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So similar to what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. It is I. Be of good courage. So when, when they cross the Jordan, what God is saying to Joshua is, I'm going to be with you in that. And when you attack Jericho, I'm going to be with you in that. Don't pull me apart from these events. When, when you're in chaos, I'm going to be with you in that. Again, stop splitting off the majesty of Christ from the chaos in your life. That's exactly where he should go. And that's what faith is. And when you do that, when you don't split those things off, um, you can do things that really don't make any sense. 
that are very brave, that are very courageous, that the world can't really explain. So in verse 29, for instance, Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water. And the reason he walked on the water is because he actually was aware of the presence of Christ. And he knew that it was the I am in whose presence he stood. And so he walked on water. He saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you, if you have that awareness, like Peter did, and you see Christ in the chaos, you can do things that are really inexplicable to the world, like giving money away, or not giving your body away, or loving people who hate you, confronting people who scare you. These are things that you're not going to do unless you have that kind of faith, where you would actually do something that seems impossible. You can admit things that are totally embarrassing. You know, think about the thing that you kind of know you need to do, but you don't really have the courage to do it. And that's what faith can enable you to do. That's what it enabled Peter to do. I remember walking into a room at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church when I was a pastor there. It was the nursing mother's room. And I'll always think of it as the room of conflict. For me, that's what I'll always think of. Because... It was, it was this awful, awful conversation that I had to have with someone. And it was probably the first one of those that was really, really awful in my life. I was in my 30s. There was a person who was just furious with me, so angry. And I didn't know what that was like. Other than my wife, I had really never had anyone that angry with me before. Maybe my mom or a brother, but uh, this, this was different. And so, of course, Steve Beck is there. Because Steve Beck, if you know Steve Beck, he's the peacemaker. And if, if Steve Beck is with you in a meeting, it's probably not a good meeting. Um, he's going to help you make it a better meeting. But, but if he is there, that means you're at odds with someone. So Steve's there. And I could just feel the waves of um, disdain uh, coming from this guy's face. And, I'm, and in bitterness. And I think I even said that. I think I said, uh, I feel like you just absolutely hate me right now. And I think he said, I do. And uh, the only way that I could not actually get out of that room is, is by thinking about Christ, um, perceiving his presence. And I almost, at times, I would stop being aware of that, and I would start to become aware of this guy's hate, and then I would kind of sink and want to leave. And so whenever I stopped, I would kind of sink. And when Peter starts sinking, it's because he's not looking, he's not aware of the majesty, the sovereignty of God, the, the great I am that is present and incarnate in this world and with us all the time through the power of the Holy Spirit. So faith is, uh, faith is that dependent on God. That when it starts to go, you start to sink and you, you start to not be able to do these things um, that you know you should do. I mean, even the will to get out of the boat is from God. I didn't notice this till like the 10th time reading through the passage, but... But look at verse 28 and notice that Peter has to actually ask Jesus for the courage to come to him. And so he says in verse 28, command me to come to you on the water. In other words, I, I want it, but I can't do it because I don't have that much faith. Command me, give me the faith. I need you to give me the faith. And that's one aspect of faith is that it's not something that you can just muster up. It's got to be something you ask for and receive as a gift. It's an amazing admission. I can't even come to you without you commanding me. And then Jesus says in verse 29, come to me. And it says in verse 29, Peter comes out of the boat. So he has this sovereign ability to say a word and make you able to do it. Even though getting out of that boat was crazy and terrifying, 
One of the greatest prophets uh, of the Old Testament is Jonah. And one of the greatest statements of faith is from the prophet Jonah. And if you know about Jonah, he was drowning, literally. He had gone under the water quite a ways. Uh, He was being disobedient. He was drowning in the chaos of the Mediterranean Sea. And God brings this giant fish. Sometimes people think it's a whale, but it actually doesn't say whale. And it, it says big fish. And people have been known to be swallowed by fish before. This has happened. So he is swallowed by a fish that spits him out on the land. And as he is dragging his sandy body up the beach, he cries out, probably on his knees, he says, salvation is of the Lord. And I think that's a great statement of what faith is. That salvation is entirely of the Lord. It comes from God. Um, it goes to God. It's from first to last. We cannot rescue ourselves from the chaos. Peter has to even ask to come out of the boat. Command me to come out of the boat. And only then can he come. So when, when Peter starts sinking, uh, he doesn't try to swim or call out for a life vest or a rope. He just yells out in verse 30, save me. Just like Jonah. Save me, Lord. I can't do anything. I can't get myself out of this situation. I can't get myself up out of the water. I remember when I was um, whitewater rafting, the only time I've ever done that. And uh, I started out at a really high level um, because of my crazy friend who took me whitewater rafting on the Nile, the very source where it's like class five rapids. And I think I've mentioned this before. I, um, I was thrown out in the middle of one of those rapids and I was trying to get back in, in the, uh, the raft and I couldn't do it. I didn't know that I couldn't do that kind of thing. But uh, I was trying to kick my hardest to get out of the water, to lift myself up. And I was trying to grab the raft. I couldn't do it. So finally, I just put my hand up, both hands up. And, uh, and the huge tour guide um, just lifted me out of, out of the... And Stephen Langford, I don't know if he's here. But he and the tour guide just pulled me up out like a wet dog. And it was really embarrassing. And... Um, you know, after that, I was like, I've got to get more upper body strength. I can't believe I couldn't get out of that. I could not get out of the Nile River. It was incredibly passive, embarrassing, dependent. It was not a good feeling. And that's what happens in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and lifted Peter up out of his chaos when he could not get out. And again, that's right at the heart of faith, is that salvation is entirely of the Lord. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. You can't leverage yourself because you're sinking. I was once putting one of my children to bed and they were in the midst of a major crisis. And I was terrified and I was weeping and I was sinking. I did not know what to do. My thoughts were racing. I was so used to being able to be in control and find some solution. We all are. I mean, we're Westerners. We're we're 21st century Americans, so we're used to being able to find some solution or make some plan, find some way out of the situation, but it was like a boxed canyon. And I thought of everything, and I could not think of anything that would even begin to help in this situation. And so I was crying uncontrollably, and it was one of the very few times in my life where I really cried out, Lord, save me. I have no idea what to do right now. And that's when Jesus comes and says, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And if you notice, the presence of God, again, is sandwiched between the, the two commands. So you have, the, like, the bun is, like, the take heart and do not fear. And in the middle, the meat is I am. And so those commands only make sense with the presence of God in the middle of our chaos. And it says in verse 32, when Jesus got out of the boat, 
uh, got into the boat, the wind ceased. And from earliest times, the church has been using that as a way of saying when Christ enters into the church, which is often depicted as a boat. Um, if you know the symbol of Duke Divinity School, it's a boat. Because the church is often depicted as a boat. And when Jesus gets into the boat, there's peace. When the presence of Christ comes, there's peace. It comes over the church. And chaos turns to peace. And then in verse 33, the terror turns into worship. And it says, they worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. When we see him as he really is, then we worship him and say, you really are the great I am and you're with us. And that's what this meal is all about. I mean, this meal is Christ getting into the boat.